All right, good morning. This isn't what we expected for today. We expected to have everybody outside for Vision Sunday and be telling you all the wonderful things that have been going on this past year in spite of a global pandemic. And we were hoping to look forward to what God has for us in the days ahead, and yet God had something different for us, so here we are. So I spent some time thinking and praying and really considering where God would have us go for this particular message, and I zeroed in on Isaiah chapter 57, a place where he talks about people who are totally crushed, and yet for them, there is incredible hope. So before we begin this morning, let's just take a moment, let's just pray one more time and ask the Lord to minister to us because I know there are many among us who are feeling a sense of being crushed. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you that you are a God who cares about those who are suffering and you care about those who are struggling and finding themselves in situations where life just is not what we would want it to be, Lord. We look to you, and we pray, Lord, that you would minister to us, to our souls, as we look at the words of Isaiah 57. And Lord, would you lead us to the place where you want us to be, a place of humility, a place of, of being contrite, a place of looking to you, as our one and only hope. We love you. Bless this time, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. There's a story that I'd like to read to you to start things off here. It goes like this. On December 17th, 1927, conducting submerged trials off of Provincetown, Massachusetts, a submarine named the S-4. It was rammed by a Coast Guard destroyer hold in the starboard side, just forward of her deck gun, it says, the submarine sank immediately. All of her officers and men were able to reach unflooded compartments as the S-4 went to the bottom in 110 feet of water. However, the majority who had gone aft, it says, soon succumbed. In her, her torpedo room, forward. Six men remained alive. In extremely cold water and tangled wreckage, Navy divers worked desperately to rescue them. One diver, who was doing everything in his power to find a way to save the crew, thought he heard a tapping on the steel hull of the sub. Quickly, he recognized it was Morse code. He spelled it out in his mind, the message that had been tapped from within, and it was repeating the same question over and over and over again. Is there any hope? That's a haunting question, is it not? It's a haunting question, and yet it's a very familiar question. Have you ever felt so lost or so low or so far gone, so underwater, maybe so guilt-ridden or so spent or so depleted that it felt like all hope was lost? I'll bet you have. 
And I'll bet it wasn't a long time ago if it's not right now. Is there any hope? Well, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 57. We'll start at verse 14 and see what the word of the Lord says for us today. Verse 14, Isaiah 57. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of lips, peace. Peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. May God bless the reading of his word. This passage is about hope. It's a passage about hope. Now, if we're going to truly understand what's going on here, we actually need to familiarize ourselves with what happens in the passages that come before it. So here is the background. Israel the people of Israel, God's people, in that land, there was great corruption. The leaders, they were referred to in verse 11 as shepherds. They've abandoned their role of caring for the people, and they're consumed with these hunger pangs of their selfish appetites. It says this in Isaiah 57, verse 11. It says, the dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. So we see that these people, these leaders, they lack wisdom. They have no ability to make good decisions. They believe that just by ignoring the circumstances, what's going on around them, behaving like everything is okay, that the future is going to be bright. They're blind to the impeding destruction, the impending destruction. And so the prophet Isaiah in 56.9, he whimsically calls out to whoever might challenge them that they might devour and destroy them to seize the opportunity. This is the moment. Take these guys out, Isaiah says. He writes, all you beasts of the field, come to devour. And no doubt he's alluding to those surrounding nations that have been just waiting for that right moment to strike. In 57, 1 to 2, we see the effects of their bad leadership. It says this, 
The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. So in a place where leaders care more about their own interests than the interests of others, good people suffer. That's what he's describing here. Those who are righteous, they become, they become victims. They become casualties. Have you seen some of that in your own life? Good people suffering because bad people are making bad decisions? They're just considered collateral damage. They're written off as necessary losses. Or maybe they're persecuted. Maybe they're just done away with because of their, the inconvenience of the truth that they've been proclaiming. And for these people, death is actually kind of a release, the prophets uh, tells us here. Their role in the battle of it against evil, that their unpopular stand for what is right, finally, that struggle has come to an end. They can rest and they can rest in peace. That's what he's telling us here. The picture actually grows even darker, though. Isaiah tells us that there's sorcery in the land, there's cruelty, deception is abounding. There's pagan sexual practices that are being in, adopted enthusiastically. Child sacrifice is being practiced. Idolatry runs rampant. People are worshiping anything and everything. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound a little bit like some things maybe you're seeing in the day and age that you find yourself living in? I don't think we're all that far off. But the question is here, does that mean all hope is lost? I mean, the picture that is being painted is very, very dark. These people have sunk very, very low. And you would think that God would just say, yeah, I think I'm done here. Let's, uh, you know, I know I, I promised that we weren't going to flood the earth again. I think we need to flood the earth again. Or maybe we come up with something else. Maybe, you know, the lightning bolts come out and we just start zapping people left and right. Is all hope lost? In spite of all the terrible wickedness, God offers hope. He offers hope to anyone who would take refuge in him, who would place their, their complete trust in him. Isaiah writes on God's behalf at the end of verse 13, he writes this, but he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And that brings us to our text this morning. We're going to just walk through it. We're going to break it down verse by verse. And God declares hope for the wayward in verse 14. Let's look at it. And it writes this, and it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's Way. There's a concrete imagery that's being used here, and it's conveying an unseen reality. This verse 14, it paints a geographic picture of the spiritual condition of God's people. So their wicked hearts, they've led them astray, far away from God. We know that from what we've read in chapter 56 and the first 13 verses of 57. 
But verse 14 now, that's a declaration to make possible the great return of God's people. God's saying, get ready. My people, they're going to turn to me, remove every obstacle from their path. The roads, they've become overgrown with weeds. They've been eroded by floodwaters. Uh, as things stand, no one can journey back to them. Trees have fallen in the way along the path. Landslides have covered the path. And God's saying, get it ready. My people are going to return. The prodigals will return. Verse 15 begins to give us a little bit of an understanding as to how this is going to happen. It says this, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of of the contrite. So how can it be that God, who is high and lifted up, could stoop so low as to make a way for the return of these despicable people? How can that be? Now, Isaiah's audience, they would have been very familiar with the idea of God being someone who dwells in a holy Place. They had in their presence that physical symbol of the heavenly holy place. They had the tabernacle, right? And later on, they would have the temple. It was, it was a place that where, where God was to dwell with them. His presence was to be felt with them. It was composed of two rooms. Two rooms. The first was called the holy place. In that section, there were various uh, sacred items. There was uh, the lampstand. There was the table of the bread of presence. But then there was another room. There was a second room. And in that room, we're told, was kept things like the altar, the altar of incense or, and, and, and the Ark of the Covenant. This place was was not just the holy place. It was the holy of holy places. It was the most holy place. And that was a room that was strictly restricted. And it wasn't restricted because there were military secrets in there. It wasn't restricted because uh, Israel had special things that they didn't want to get out and get into the wrong hands. No, it was restricted because that's where the presence of the Lord was most strongly felt with his people. Holiness, that was, that was sacred. It was precious. It was to remain separate from anything that was unholy. The presence of holiness is extremely dangerous for anything or anyone who is unholy. The only one who could enter that most holy place was the high priest. And that high priest, because he himself was a, a, a sinful person, he was only permitted to enter once a year. And only then on the day of atonement. Isaiah 57.15 talks about God being high and lifted up. He is holy. He is separate. He is transcendent. He's, 
He's exalted over all creation. He dwells in that high and holy place, a place which that holy of holies, the, the most holy place in the temple or in the tabernacle, that was just a, a shadow, just a, just a copy of the real dwelling place of God. David, that man after God's own heart, writes this in Psalm 24, verses 1 through 4. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? David writes, who shall stand in his holy place? David answers his own question. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Okay, so who can enter? Who can dwell with this most holy, this transcendent, high and lifted up God? Who can come into his presence? Well, pretty much no one. No one. Any person who has a pure heart doesn't that eliminate everybody? Certainly eliminates me. Psalm 14, 1 says, there is none who does good. There's no one. And if that's the case, how can it be that God who is high and lifted up, how can it be that he could stoop so low as to make a, a way for his people, his wicked people, we've, we've read how wicked they were, they're going to return to him? That doesn't make sense. How can he do it? The answer is found in the second half of verse 15. The Lord says, yeah, I dwell in the high and holy place, but I also dwell somewhere else. He writes, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Those are amazing words, aren't they? <laughs> Beautiful words. The possibility that a way might be made for rebellious people to return to God, a God who is, is, is unapproachable, that only happens as God makes the first move and approaches to dwell with people who are crushed and who are humble. One pastor wrote this, and when he lives with them, they will be revived. They will return crushed and humbled by their sin. And God will come to them and give them a new lease on life forever. God will not always be angry. Verse 16 tells us that, for I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Not only does hope spring from knowing that the Lord desires to dwell with those who are of a contrite and lowly spirit, it also grows with his promise that he's not always going to be angry. God promised that. 
His wrath will not always burn against his people. He knows exactly how much punishment that they can take, and he's not going to bring them to utter ruin. Why? Because they're his people. We're told in Isaiah 43, 7, that they were specifically created for his glory. So God intends to turn from his righteous anger. This will not be in a way that is unjust or will ignore the wrongs that they have done. He will find a way for their sin to be rightly dealt with. Now, God's just not going to turn a blind eye. He's not going to just ignore the wrongs that his, his people have done. Verse 17 says, Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. Now, God doesn't look at the sins of his people like some uh, over-adorning over-adoring parent looks at his child and just sees his child uh, doing something terrible and just says, oh, isn't that cute? Just completely ignores the wrong. No, no, God's not like that. He knows exactly what his people have been up to. He saw every gruesome detail of every one of their sinful indulgences. Uh, He even punished them for it by bringing about trials and removing the, the knowledge of his presence from among them. And yet in spite of it all, they continually return to their prideful uh, desires and they follow their hearts over and over and over again. God doesn't ignore any of that. I like what one pastor concludes from this verse. He writes, it's an appalling thing to be struck down by God for walking in your own proud way and then to stand back up and keep right on going the way you were. And that's exactly what was going on with Israel here. And it's precisely what makes verse 18 so incredible. Proud, rebellious hearts will be healed. I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of lips. God says, I know, I know. You can't hide it from me. I know all that's been going on among you. I've seen how you turn from me to run after your perversity and your selfishness. I know how you've made a mockery of justice. I know it. I've watched you as you protected your own interests at the expense of others. I've seen it. I've observed how you traded your worship for me for worship of lame, inanimate objects that you made. How can you worship those things? And yet, I will heal you. What will this healing look like? What prescription is to be given to those who flaunt their own wickedness and arrogantly pursue their own ways? It's this. He will crush their pride. Think about it. If it's only the contrite and lowly in spirit that the high and lofty one will dwell with, 
And if dwelling with God is, is the ultimate state of being healthy, and if the thing that caused this separation and this sickness was, was prideful rebellion that desired to go its own way rather than God's way, then that rebellious spirit must be crushed in order to be healed. It needs to be, to be made humble. It needs to properly acknowledge its place before the Holy One. For too long, it bought into the lie that, that brought this hope of being like God. I can be like God. In fact, I am better than all these other people. Maybe I am God. It needs to be given a dose of reality that says, there's only one God and you're not it. It needs to be crushed. The crushing is an act of God's mercy because it reveals the waywardness. When Jesus told of a son who left his father and wasted all of his inheritance on foolish pursuits, where did the merciful healing of that son's heart begin? Do you remember where? It began when he was eating with the pigs. It began when he hit rock bottom. It began when his life was crushed and he had nowhere else to go. Do you remember what he said? In Luke 15, it says this, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This is a man whose pride was crushed and nothing left. All the evidence pointed to you are a failure. You thought you were something special. You thought you could do amazing things. You thought if you just had money, you thought if you were just on your own, and look what you have come to. He was crushed. And that's where the healing began. He was healed with humility as he recognized his state of unworthiness. This is exactly the type of humility that Paul seeks to inspire in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. He does everything possible to show prideful and rebellious people the truth of their failure to meet God's perfect standards. He writes this in verse 21 of the first chapter. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to, be, claiming to be wise, they became fools. There are those who outright choose to defy God. I don't want to have anything to do with him. He tells me to do this, I'm going to do that. Some deny that he even exists. There's, uh, there's not even really a God out there. I can just do whatever I want. Others, they acknowledge it. They acknowledge God, that God exists and they do whatever they want in spite of it. And still others, they convince themselves that they're somehow good enough to earn God's approval 
on their own merits. I, I do enough good things. I donate to charity. I do all sorts of different wonderful things. And to them, Paul writes, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, every one of you who looks down your nose and points the finger at somebody else saying, look how terrible they are, look how good I am. He says, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. In other words, God sees right through your hypocrisy, your self-righteousness. He sees right into your heart and it's intense. Paul wants those who, who are resting, they're sitting back and they're thinking that they're good enough to know that they're living in a fantasy world. In Romans 3.23, he writes, all have sinned. And that same all falls short of the glory of God. Everyone needs to be crushed. That's where healing begins. It begins in the recognition of our humble state before the one who is high and lifted up, who dwells in the high and lofty places. I dwell with those who are of contrite and lowly spirit, God says. Peace. Peace is what they will receive. In verse 18, he says, I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I'll lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of lips. And what is the fruit of their lips? What is the, the product? What's being produced by their lips? It's this in verse 19. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked as God melts those hearts that have become so hard and so callous and so prideful, he melts them with humility. Isaiah tells us he gives them a song upon their lips. The song is peace. It's peace. No longer are you at war with your maker. Peace between God and those who have been humbled. Where once there was anger, where once there was wrath, now there will be peace. It's incredible. Maybe one of the most powerful thoughts in this whole passage, it comes from, from one tiny word. It doesn't necessarily jump off the page at first, but it's an important word. Up until now, those who were Jewish and who read this passage, 14 to 21, Isaiah 57, they would, they would have been maybe encouraged, maybe filled with hope. God's going to make a way for his people to return. Maybe they looked at the sinfulness all around them and he said, yeah, but God's going to make a way. He's going to straighten the path. He's going to level, level it out. He's going to bring us back to him. We got to be humble, contrite heart, all of that. And I think that many Jewish readers would have been encouraged by that. But where does the, that leave the rest of us who don't belong to the Jewish people. We're not Jews. Can we draw any hopeful words? Any hope from these words? The only hope that we can find is in a tiny word. The word far. We're the ones 
who were far. Paul refers to this verse in Ephesians 2.13, where once we were far, completely cut off, completely alienated. We weren't a part of God's people. We were owed nothing. And Paul writes, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He goes on in verse 17 to write this. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Verse 19, so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. This is incredible. How does the unapproachable God approach those who have been crushed and humbled by their sin? Well, God comes to dwell with the lowly through the sending of Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who can build up and prepare the way. He's the only one who can remove those charges and appease God's righteous anger as he takes the punishment for our sin upon himself at the cross. Isaiah told us in chapter 53, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And Paul said in Ephesians 2.14, he himself is our peace. How incredibly awesome is the majesty of God and this overwhelmingly merciful plan to heal those and to dwell with crushed people and not just the Jewish people, not just his people, but those who were far, those who were far off just like you and me. There's hope for the weary, hope for the humble, hope for the crushed and the lowly. It's not found in ourselves. It's found in the one who is high and lifted up. It's found in the one who is holy, who has made a way for us to have our spirits revived and to dwell with him. Do you know him? Do you trust him? Or are you still trusting in yourself? Are you still hoping you can be good enough? Or maybe just completely ignoring him altogether? Know that the only way for you to come back is by the blood of Jesus Christ that paid for your sins, that you might be washed clean, be forgiven, and be restored. Your maker. Would you trust him now? Many listening to this, watching this, have already experienced that healing. You were far, you've been brought near. You were at war, now you were at peace. For those of us who are in that category, let's continue to be in awe of the work of our great God and what he has done as he has crushed and humbled lives that they might be brought near to him, washed clean 
and restored. There are a lot of things in our world that feel crushing right now. But there is one experience of, of, of crushing that we all need. And that is the crushing understanding of our own sin. And as you go through difficulties today and tomorrow and the next day, would you remember, would you remember that the most important thing that God has done for you is to crush your pride so that you might realize your need for him? And sure, we go through life and we don't like the difficulties we are facing. We're going through life and we want things to turn around. But maybe, just maybe, God is using those things to make a way for you to come closer to him. Would you lean on him? Would you look to him? Would you trust him? Even in the difficult things you are facing in your life right now that you might experience his peace and restoration. Lord, we, we love you. We thank you. You are the high and holy one, lifted up, transcendent, completely separate. In your presence, Lord, we do not deserve to dwell. We should, we should not be allowed to come into your presence and survive, Lord, but we can because you have crushed our pride. You have caused us to realize our great need for you. And you have set our sights on Jesus Christ, our one and only hope. Thank you, Lord, that Christ has taken our sins upon himself and he paid for them. Thank you, Lord, that he has cloaked us in his righteousness. The thing that, that enables us to come boldly before the throne of grace and say, Lord, we are in your presence only because of Jesus, only because he made the way possible. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray for your people in the days ahead as they endure trials of many kinds. May they be reminded reminded of their great need for you and continue to look to you as their one and only hope. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.